We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Arizona, Colorado, Indiana, Michigan, New Jersey, Tennessee, and Virginia. WinBet is now live in all these states, and the excitement of Win Las Vegas has finally landed in online sports betting and casino play. From boosted parlays to live in-game offs on every major sport, WinBet gives you the tools to win. Sign up today for your risk-free $1,000 sports bet. Download the WinBet app now or visit winbet.com to start winning. Blue Wire. What is up, Nets fans? Welcome to Brooklyn Buzz. I'm Nick Faye. With me, regular guest on the show, Lucas Kaplan of Nets Daily. Lucas, third straight loss for the Nets tonight to the Memphis Grizzlies, 118-104. How are we feeling? Uh, not great. Season, I guess, of ebbs and flows, and 82 games can feel really, really long when it's not going well. Um, you know, credit to Memphis. I mean, before we start, I just it's worth saying that's a top-four team in the West, and this is sort of what they do. Yeah, they play physical. They play hard. You know, they don't really take possessions off. There's a lot of young guys that are hungry on that team. And they still have injuries, too, and they played well. You know, no Dylan Brooks, no Kyle Anderson. Like, other guys were out tonight. They have some guys in COVID protocol. Yeah. So credit them, came in, played hard. Like you mentioned, uh, off off the show, you know, they've been kicking Brooklyn's ass the last couple of times they've met up. So, you know, this was a, another ass-beating for the Nets, and we're going to jump to that in plenty more. But you can find the buzz on all string platforms. Now, Lucas – I would say multiple things went wrong for the Nets tonight. In your eyes, what was the biggest issue? Well, I mean, I think they just didn't really care in the second half. First quarter, they came out, they got punched, right? It happens. I mean, even though it happened last game and KD had that quote after last game, like we can't come out lazy, whatever, expecting it to be sweet. The Nets punched back, you know, got it to three, four, whatever. Um, and then once they got punched again, it was just kind of like, all right, we're laying down. Um, there were some, I think, positives to take away from the first half. And the first half resembled, like, you know, a more real basketball game. And uh, I think there were honestly lessons to be learned. But in the second half, it wasn't that. It was more just your classic, like, blowout. Um, the Nets just were kind of looking to the bench, I think, and just sort of, like, save us. Yeah. Know? 
It feels like almost like a similar blowout to what we've seen this season. Like they'll they'll get themselves back into a game, and then when that team makes the punch in that third quarter, they don't really have anything to respond with. Steve Nash doesn't really necessarily have an adjustment to help them, and then next thing you know, they're down twenty, and the game's pretty much over at that point. I think, like you said, like January game, January third. They just didn't really have the juice. They didn't really have the interest. And Memphis, a team that has a lot of interest, a hungry team, the Nets just didn't have enough in terms of that. But in terms of things that the Nets could control other than the energy, what was the issue for you? Well, it's hard to totally separate it from energy, but obviously we have to talk about the defensive glass. Um, You know, I think it goes, I think it's a little bit too simplistic to just say that's like an energy stat um, because Memphis a very well-coached team, just like the Clippers, were very, very intentional about crashing the glass from the wings, the dunker spot. Um, you know, I think it's twofold because when the Nets started making that little fake comeback with the rookies, uh, a lot of it was, damn, they're pushing the ball up in transition. They're getting these young athletes sort of ahead of the pace. Not only uh, can you attack the glass Um, when you're playing the Nets, but you don't really have to worry about most of their rotation players getting out on the break in transition. I mean, other than Bembry um, and occasionally Bruce Brown, you know, they don't really have guys that are going to push the ball if they get a a board and create something um, or just beat you down the floor. And typically they're in such a disadvantage because, like, if they are having a good rebounding game, it's because they're group rebounding, so they don't necessarily even have the bodies to push. And like you're saying, they're also old, too. Right. It's twofold. You know, it's kind of it comes at them from both directions, a size thing and sort of an athletic athleticism thing. Yeah, I mean, that was definitely a struggle. And then Stephen Adams, obviously, I think, you know, one of the best offensive rebounders in the league. And I want to say going to this game, offensive rebounding percentage, Memphis was number one in the league. It felt that way yep. watching a game. So just a lot of guys and also just like the athletes and the constant energy and making you work. The Nets just like we said, didn't really have an interest in that. Do you think, you know, a game like this, knowing you're going against an opponent like this, does it make sense to include maybe some of those young guys in the rotation early in the game rather than wait till it's a blowout? Definitely. Um, not just for spacing reasons, which even I and Eagle touched down on the broadcast, but also for just sort of that indescribable juice. Yep. You, know, <laughs> you know, when you see it, yep. sort of thing. Um, something that made the Raptors and the Sixers wins and even the Magic loss to an extent, like very enjoyable. Um, and not only is it entertaining, but I think if you've watched enough games, especially Nets fans this year, like you can tell that adds some sort of real tangible value to a team. And I think it also helps the Barclays crowd. Like they just yeah. seem more energetic when there's some of these fast plays, just like offensively they get so stagnant you know with just some of the old guys and the non-spacing and then it just becomes iso basketball or you're looking for you know kd contested shots or tough patty mills threes and it's just hard to kind of get the crowd going like you're saying like a guy like david duke jr definitely not the most skilled nba player but a guy that just constantly plays with energy i love the fact that he just came in the game and he's picking up jaw full court you know he made him really work in some of those possessions and just picking up whoever was in front of him so i would have loved to see those guys were, like you said, not just the juice and the energy, but also some of the spacing. I thought Cam Thomas came in, did some things. Obviously, it's always hard to tell if that's just garbage time or if that's like right. real possessions. But again, the guys they're playing is just putting them at such a disadvantage. And it's putting a lot of pressure on Kevin Durant, James Harden and Patty Mills to be really good offensively because 
they're playing, you know, three non-shooters a lot of time. Harden's a guy that doesn't really shoot catch-and-shoot threes. So now all of a sudden it's like 1v5 for Kevin Durant, and I think that's just becomes very taxing for them, and it just becomes hard to grind out offensive possessions every single time down the floor. I'm really surprised that Cam uh, didn't get any minutes, any real minutes, you know, tonight, just because not only did he crack the rotation before any of the COVID stuff, um, you know, Kessler Edwards, David Duke Jr., Sharp, you know, those guys, they really only got their first taste of minutes once, you know, half the roster was out. But Cam, you know, that first Cleveland game and the Boston game, yep. they were at pretty much full strength or at least full strength minus Joe and Kyrie. Right. Um, he can dribble. It's really I think that's simple. You know, he can just do something. Um, he can do something with the ball. He, as an aside, he had that like really excellent lob to Sharp, yeah, pick and roll where he kind of held the defender in jail and then looked to the corner to sort of hold the low man with his eyes. Uh, if you know, Cam can do things with the ball. You know, I yeah. think it's that simple. Not just shoot, but um, it makes that even more surprising that he doesn't play a lot because Patty is not really one to put the ball on the floor. Agreed. And I mean, even Cam closed that game against the Hawks in the fourth quarter before all that COVID stuff. You know what I mean? Like he was getting minutes, you know, Nash was trusting him a little bit more. And like you said, he can dribble the basketball, he can attack space, and he has an array of different scoring moves. You know, obviously the jumper isn't perfect from three, but that floater looks really good. The layup package is there in different uh, situations. And I thought even just the playmaking for him tonight, he had, the, like you said, the nice lob to sharp. And then there was a couple nice passes in there. Like he looked oh. like he was running the offense a little bit. And I was like, you know, I didn't necessarily expect that in year one from Cam. Yeah, I think I think that's a good point. I, I mean, if we're going to just at least be optimistic for a minute, I think that has impressed me a little bit more than I maybe was led to believe. I wasn't like a draft expert on him or anything like that. But he's had some plays where he drives the lane. That other one today, uh, he drove from the left wing and made a left-hand pass to Bruce Brown in the corner for a three. He's definitely had more of those moments where I'm like, oh, than I thought would happen. Um, And you can kind of see it when Cam's not on the floor. It's like Harden will give it up, and these other guys that are not KD just (laughs) have no, you know, James Johnson tries, I think, to help him out by just taking the ball and getting to the rim. But it's like, you know, they're scared kids at a pickup game almost where you get the ball, you get crowded, and you just look to pass it back to whoever the best player on the court is. Yeah, it feels like sometimes they just run like three dribble handoffs and the ball just ends back up in James Harden's hands. Like they're trying to do something sometimes, but they just don't have that skill set. Or like you said, they get pressured, they pick up the ball. Now all of a sudden the shot clock's at eight seconds and now someone has to take a contested shot. And like you said, you know, if you put Cam on the floor, he's a guy that can make something out of nothing and just give them possessions off. Even uh, in the Sixers game, I believe he played four minutes and he came in in that game and he just had one position right off rip where Katie threw him the ball and was just like, go to work had an easy layup. It's just like simple stuff like that just makes the offense a little bit easier, and it's just another threat on the floor. Yeah, I think in the same way that a lot of people have called LaMarcus Aldridge sort of like an innings eater, just like you need someone to take these shots, and that's why he's been better than expected offensively. Cam is too. I mean, the three-point shooting, he's not a sniper. You know, He's not going to be like a lethal catch-and-shoot threat, but I don't even think it matters as much as I thought it would because he can get to that 16-footer like anytime he wants. If the defense is rotated even a little bit, if he has any sort of closeout to attack, he is really reliable getting to that 12, 16-foot range. You know, maybe he's not going to get two feet in the paint all the time, Mm -hmm. 
but he's going to get a shot that he's comfortable taking. And at this point, like, you know, beggars can't be choosers. Like, yeah, is he going to shoot 40% in the long run? Is that not a lot of points per possession? Maybe. But that offense just needs some of that right now. Yeah, it's just a threat. I mean, he also is able to maintain some of the advantage that the offense creates. You know what I mean? Like, you're throwing the ball to James Johnson or Bembry at the three-point line or Bruce Brown. You know, it's a catch, maybe dribble sideways. James Johnson occasionally will kind of make a play out of it. But good defenses, like we saw against Memphis, like we saw against the Clippers, they're going to be prepared for that and understand the limitations. Like, it was the quote from KD after the Clippers game. They were yelling two shooters on the floor. Like, I mean, at some point, I think Steve Nash needs to react and just play these guys, even if they're giving up something defensively or they're making these rookie mistakes, because offensively is where the Nets are going to shine. You know, we watched one of the greatest offenses last year in terms of just like yeah. uh, visually pleasing. And now we're stuck watching this. I think that's what makes it even a little bit more painful. Yeah, it's funny. Some possessions you see sort of the exoskeleton of that offense. Like there was one where the ball swung around the perimeter and James Johnson got into a handoff with Patty Mills on the right side of the court and two went to Patty and Patty hit James Johnson after the handoff. And then Johnson shoveled it to Claxton and then Claxton tried to make another pass and another pass. And it's like the possessions like that that would end in dunks last year or corner threes either just don't have the shooters to fill those corners to get those passes. Um, or so, everything's congested in the paint when they get the open dunk. Right. That last year would be, you know, a one-on-one or Bruce Brown, or he has some type of advantage rolling to the rim. Now there's two or three bodies rather than one. Right. You, yeah, it, it's just so congested in there. You have to make not just three easy passes, but three easy passes and then two more tough passes. And that's sort of where things often deteriorate. Yeah, I mean, it's complicating things. It's just making it that much more difficult. And it feels like last year it was almost simple how easy the offense was. And obviously, some of that's roster limitations. Like, it's not all Steve Nash's fault. Like, they have guys in this team that just can't shoot the three ball. doesn't help that Blake, you know, fell off a cliff in that aspect as well because he was a guy that was shooting, you know, mid-30s last year. And it made it easier to play Bruce Brown because I think for Bruce to be effective on that short roll and rolling to the rim, he needs some type of big that spaces the floor and probably needs, you know, three or four other shooters out there and there's really not lineups for him to do that this year right I mean you have Claxton Bembry and James Johnson and when the play sort of unfolds they all end up at the front of the rim yeah and I can't blame them for it you know I mean Bembry is probably like what six of 11 or something like that from the corners this year and Johnson has hit a couple but on on the whole you don't want them in the corners you know they're making the right plays when they cut to the basket but if the defense can just hold off that initial action, it if they can just survive for five seconds, it all leads to a congested sort of mess in the paint. And, you know, you got to credit the Grizzlies and the Clippers from last game. I mean, they were really, really active in just collapsing down from the wings. But again, they knew that's what they had to do. So, yeah. And I think it, like sometimes you mentioned like making the right play is cutting. It's like all three guys are cutting to the same spot and essentially playing defense against themselves. Like there's a p- yeah. possession tonight where like Bembry and Claxton were literally in the same spot. Like they were they could be defended by one player because they're about one foot apart. So it's definitely going to take some adjustments. And I think like you're going to have to lean into the young guys of your Steve Nash until, you know, Joe Harris is back until, you know, you get Kyrie for home games, hopefully at some point, because right now it's just like these guys are just not giving you enough offensively and defensively. They're not good enough either. It's not like they're locking teams down and playing an elite level defense right now. Um, this year, 
I just looked it up. Johnson, Bembry, Claxton, they're scoring 102 points uh, per 100, which not not very good. And it's probably more I, than I even thought it would be. I thought it'd be worse, but it's not. It's not good either. You know what I mean? It's just it it's it's rough. It's rough. It, it, that is a lot better than I thought it would be too. Some of that is, I think, uh, like small sample size. Like Harden, Katie are shooting well from three in those limited yeah. minutes, but you can tell that it's just not. It's not. It's not. It's not really sustainable. And I don't really blame the Nets as a whole or Nash just for leaning into defense. I would say, especially based on some of their opponents. But when you start to play better teams like the Grizzlies, who are just going to be able to score the ball yep. with superstar point guard and good shooters and solid role players, there's only so much the defense can do. Um, tonight, the defense just didn't bring it. But yeah. overall, there will be nights when teams score on you. Especially when you don't have the matchups for them. Yeah, exactly. So, I mean, it's just tough. It's like, I mean, I just been kind of preaching is like, they just have to lean more into offense because I think even like defensively, they lean more in. It's not like the only guy who has potential to be really like elite defensively and become that X factor player is Nick Claxton. DeAndre Brembry is a, a good on ball defender, but he's definitely a minus offensively with the, the lineups he's being put in. So it's like how many other guys are really giving you that defensive plus, especially when, you know, James Harden's taking, you know, half of the possessions off, you know, KD's doing his thing. But at the end of the day, like you're playing minus defenders as well. I was encouraged. KD seemed, I think the first half was his best sort of defensive half, I think of the season. I mean, he was just really active and attentive, helping down near the rim. But I do agree with that. I think I've kind of come around on their best lineup in non-Kyrie games. You know, if he never gets back for home games, being Harden, KD, Joe, Patty, Claxton. Yeah. yeah, I think that's that's the right move. And I think also now everything you do just becomes a little bit easier. You know, uh, James yeah. Harden, Nick Claxton, pick and roll becomes a lot more effective because now who are you pulling off of? You know, Mills, Harris, or KD? You really can't because they're all good shooters. They're all elite shooters. So now it's like now you're back to putting the, the opposing team in such a distressed position where offense is going to become easy for you. And not only that, but KD... Joe to an extent and even Patty can if a closeout you know fly flies by them yep. they can put the ball on the floor and at least trust you can trust all those guys to keep the advantage going to make the right play yep um, when's the last time we saw Harden throw a swing pass or a skip pass in pick and roll you know get it to the other side of the court I mean yeah. there's never a reason for him to <laughs> that's a great I mean there really isn't because like what like we've talked about it's what's it going to go to Bruce Brown or James Johnson to shoot a, like a corner three that the offense really doesn't want so you know occasionally I think you might get one to Patty Mills once in a while but it's only against the bad teams because they're making that mistake most good teams aren't leaving him open yeah I think also it's just the Nets have to have such specific spacing parameters on every possession where yeah. if they don't exactly get it right the possession's just not going to go anywhere like there were a couple where there was a side pick and roll and, and KD was on the weak side and uh, Blake Griffin finished a layup just because the only help that could have come was off KD. But again, it's like you can't trust them to get exactly perfect um, alignments every time down the court. And again, eventually defenses will just adjust. Yeah, it's not like you're running set plays every time like it's the NFL or something. It's the NBA. There's just going to be regular flow to the game. And by right. the time you're setting some of these things up, you're wasting the shot clock. And like you said, teams are eventually going to prep for that. So We're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. 
Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. Leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every day, Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Just go to Indeed.com slash BlueWire right now and support our show by saying that you heard about Indeed on this podcast. That's Indeed.com slash BlueWire. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. If you're a basketball junkie, then you know there's no better time of year than the NBA playoffs. Twice a week, J.J. Redick is cooking on his podcast, The Old Man and the Three. He has guys come on in all stages of their careers to talk about the league and share stories you won't hear anywhere else, including Devin Booker on why he talks so much trash, Ray Allen's epic free throw competitions with LeBron in Miami, and the moment Tyrese Halliburton knew Pascal Siakam would be a good fit in Indy. In addition to player interviews, every Monday, J.J. breaks down the top three things happening around the NBA with unmatched analysis not outlandish takes, and is often joined by masterminds of the game like Tim Legler to dive deep on rookie reports, trade breakdowns, and why is mean mugging now a tech? You won't find another outlet that covers the game as comprehensively and with such insight as JJ does it on The Old Man and the Three. Make this your companion podcast during the playoffs. Listen to The Old Man and the Three ad-free on Wondery Plus or wherever you get your podcasts. It's tough. I mean, Lucas, moving forward, obviously, Kyrie hopefully is back Wednesday, so we'll ignore that game. But for the next home game, if you were in charge of the rotation, what would you do? Well, before that, I do just want to say I think I wouldn't be surprised if this team was just sort of looking forward to getting Kyrie back. That's been a lot of the noise, you know, for the last yep. couple of weeks. I feel like this is the last game before that happens, and they maybe just kind of took tonight off because of that um, or just looked ahead. Um, but I, with the rotation... I would like to start Clax. Um, you know, they started LaMarcus last game. I think it's good data to have, but I would, um, you know, bench LaMarcus, start Clax with uh, KD and Patty and Bembry, I, yep. would, just, I would think. Um, really get a lot of KD, Patty, uh, LaMarcus sort of bench units. Mm. And with the Harden units, I would really want actually to see him with Cam just because he can attack a closeout a little bit more and Harden is a little less overburdened. Like I'd like to see maybe the Harden bench lineup is if I'm just spitballing like Harden, Cam, Kessler, maybe James Johnson, and I guess Bruce Brown. I mean, either way, you're going to be playing two non-shooters at yeah. best. But at least with that, you have a lot of ball handling around him, which uh, you know can make sort of attacking the closeouts that he'll force easier. Agreed. I think also like Patty Mills and James Johnson's a plus together. Like they've been able to kind of create some stuff out of nothing a little bit with those dribble handoffs. So now if you were able to create advantage in some of those situations and maybe you set up cam or like you said, making life easier for James Harden, maybe I'd try to get Clax in there instead of Bruce Brown as, you know, a pick and roll option. 
But I, I agree. I'd love to see Kessler Edwards. You did a great piece for Nets Daily on that. Something, you know, we've been, you know, preaching a lot about just in terms of what he can bring on the floor. I remember even I listened back to a summer league podcast we did at the end of all that. And there is a lot of promising signs then. And it's like they've yeah. all come to fruition. And it's even better than what we thought in terms of year one. And I think just the athletic body type and the potential of being a solid three-point shooter is enough to give him some run. Right. I mean, that was sort of, I think, when I really sat down and watched the film and, and in the piece I wrote on him, that was a big part of it in that his body type, it's not just like sort of your typical wet blanket three and D that everyone calls like every, no offense to Reggie Bullock, but yeah, Reggie Bullock, I guess, <laughs> is technically how you pronounce that, but I know everyone calls him Bullock. Um, but yeah, no, he's just a really live body, can mix it up. He gives him some of that energy while being able to shoot unlike maybe the Browns and the Bembrys on the roster. Um, if I'm just thinking back to what I said, I think you make a good point. I think I would go maybe more ball handling around the KD unit. So maybe something like KD, Aldridge, Mills, and then Johnson in there, yep. something like that. And then around Harden, maybe some more play finishers like Cam Kessler and Claxton. Um and that's good energy, too, to kind of make up for kind of Harden's lackadaisical effort sometimes. You know what I mean? You have the young guys putting in that hustle. And I think like Kess, you know, you pointed this out in the piece, too, is like the athletic body. It can give you that occasional weak side rim protection. Like it's not fully developed, but he can block shots. We saw him block shots. And then also like he can finish plays. Like there's a couple yeah. of dunks that he's had. And it's like, oh, like there's a little bit more pop to his game. I think right. he's added some muscle, too. Yeah, he's he is ripped. And I mean, I was reading back to his college scouting report. Um, he obviously played at Pepperdine and you have to take, you know, strength of schedule on and on into consideration. But he had a block rate of just under five percent his last year at Pepperdine. And just for comparison, Miles Turner is leading the NBA this year with a four point nine percent block rate. Um, I didn't touch on it, but I was going to say I wish we saw maybe some more low man reps from him, you know, where he'd have to slide over and help protect the rim. Yep. We haven't really seen him in those situations yet, you know, only three games. So it's kind of hard to gauge, but I wouldn't be surprised if he shows some promise there, too, just based on his college scouting report and his you know, body type. And I think, like, uh, I don't know if you agree, I think the best style of defense in Nets play is when they're switching. So he'd be a guy you'd want on the floor because obviously he can switch. But then he has at least enough length where if he is in that position where he could impact the shot of a guard. You know what I mean? Yeah. If, like, Patty Mills is sliding over, even Bruce Brown to an extent, like, how much are they really contesting that against a bigger guard? They're really not. Kess has the potential to do that. And the rebounding is solid. Yeah, you know, I think in the switching NBA, we've seen that more and more. Like the Cavaliers have sort of been the poster team for that this year, playing three seven-footers or three at least six nine, six ten guys. And just the size and the length in the lane helps. But today, I mean, the Grizzlies were playing a bunch of poor shooters, and they started Adams, Jackson, and Killian Tilly, who, yep. you know, six nine, six ten, long wingspan. I mean, we saw today finishing for the nets in the paint it was just like damn that's a lot of length to finish over yeah i mean in length helps is basketball you know what i mean it's yeah. a sport where like being long and lengthy is one of the best you know things you can have for your body type so just kind of limits some of the things you do on the floor it makes the passing lanes a little bit tighter so it's interesting we didn't see Kesslow tonight he didn't even get any minutes i wonder like steve nash didn't make a comment about ramp up and i know he was the last one i think out of protocol so what? maybe that that was the reasoning what do you think on that I could see that. I mean, Cam and Duke and Sharp exited protocols, I think, a day or two before him. I think they actually got a practice in before mm. the Clippers game, and Edwards did not. I think if they, 
I would assume they practiced yesterday, and I think that was probably his first practice. So, you know, if it's sort of an unofficial, like, oh, we two, three practices before floor time, I would get it. And, you know, the Nets are notoriously tight-lipped, very secretive about that stuff. But, yeah, I'm not going to press it too much tonight just because of the circumstances. If it becomes a pattern, we don't see him in a week or two, you know, and these problems keep progressing, I'll definitely start to be a little bit more um, annoyed. Yeah, I agree. I think uh, probably maybe one practice he looked a little gas. Like he could have actually had like symptoms and not felt well. You know what I mean? Like a lot of the guys were asymptomatic and it was fine, but like he could have not felt well, maybe you know, need to get back in shape a little bit. But I think just overall, it's just so strange that we, you know, not that the rookies earned those minutes when everyone was out, but you think you'd lean at least on a guy like Cam or throw David Duke Jr. out there just for like a minute or two, knowing that your energy is super low. And like, and I'm not, you know, I don't hate Bruce Brown or anything like that. He just really hasn't played well. Like he played well in garbage time, but there's just a lot of possessions over the last couple of games where he's either in a spot where it's not an advantage to him or honestly, his defense really hasn't been as good lately. It, it's hard. I mean, I think we saw the defense take some somewhat of a step back after the hamstring injury. Yep. I, mean, I think Nets fans who have been closely following the team can just tell before that hamstring injury, he was really excelling on defense probably at a fringe like all defense level yeah. the, the advanced mid- stats early in the season were really really good for him right I mean he was kind of the Gary Payton thing where he's only playing 20 minutes a game but in those minutes he was really impressive um it's definitely taking a step back and then you know with the offense I think it's just the same as last year um in the start of the season I would say before the shooting and the spacing really became you know got to yeah. an all-time level now it's not only not at an all-time level, but it's straight up bad. Yep. It's a lot for him to handle, I think, offensively. Yeah. Do you think defensively, too, is like obviously early in the season they were allowing a ton of contact, and now they've kind of gone back to their regular ways in terms of the foul calling, and he's been in a lot of foul trouble? Do you think that's a component? That's definitely – that's a good point. I mean, I think that's part of it. I did often say – and we talked about this. He was one of the defensive players that benefited most from the yep. rule changes. Because he loves to get physical and bump and grind guys on the perimeter. And that, um, you know, was afforded to him in the early season. I think it's that and maybe a little bit of explosiveness with the hamstring. They're both kind of contributing to that defensive sort of drop off. Because early in the year, he was beating guys to spots, especially on a lot of those screens, just getting that one step ahead. We're just making them a little bit uncomfortable. And yeah, obviously, I think the foul thing is because I think a lot of his fouls recently have just been like, almost chest bumps. It hasn't even really been handsy type of stuff where like that's something you can easily clean up. It's hard to clean up the physicality if that's something that like you're wanting to do. No, that's just how he guards. And I think that is what kind of elevated his defense to another level early in the season. Yeah. I mean, honestly, right now I feel probably more confident with Bembry on ball in terms instead of Bruce Brown, just based off of what we've seen over the last couple of weeks. Right. Bembry is more, um, you know, when he's in the sort of digging down, he'll reach. He commits sort of these fouls that are kind of backbreakers. But in terms of just point of attack, you know, perimeter stuff, Bembry has now sort of elevated his defense to at least, you know, at least Bruce Brown's level. Whereas early in the year, my position was Bembry is making it up on offense with a slight drop on defense. But now that you know, the defense is sort of at least comparable. It's hard to give Brown minutes over Bembry. 
Yeah, especially in this situation, if the Nets had, you know, four other shooters they could play next to both guys, sure, play both guys. I think at this point, though, trying to force them in there with James Johnson, with Nick Claxton, with Blake Griffin, that's where it becomes like maybe you just end up having to only play one of them. Yeah, I think I th- I would be, I mean, playoffs are so far away, but I would be shocked if it's a both, if it's not an either-or situation um, yeah. in the playoffs. That would be ideal, but uh, I guess... What else stuck out to you about this game, Lucas? Anything else, any big takeaways, or just still one of those games that the Nets just really didn't care about in early January? I mean, I'm going through my notes in the first half, which um, definitely, as I said, I thought showed some stuff. I think this team is figuring out. They're just, they just do seem to be a little bit more comfortable playing with each other. I mean, as tough as scoring the ball in the NBA is when you have three guys that can't shoot, guys are a little bit more... Um, sort of attuned as to where they're supposed to be, how to create open lanes. Uh, again, I think it's important to give the Grizzlies, as with the Clippers, a lot of credit because these have been bad losses, but both of those teams really, really played well on the defensive end, um, which is definitely part of it. But I would also say that um, Harden had another good game. There were a few possessions early on where he wasn't really getting all the way downhill, and that was leading to some turnovers, but it's it was nice to see him sort of go full throttle, pedal to the metal, and just will his way to the rim, which created some opportunities. Um, again, if we're looking at things long-term, Harden is Harden again. Yep. And over the last month, whatever, through all the ebbs and flows and ups and downs, that's just huge. So we can't lose sight of that. Yeah, I agree. I think obviously just the ability for him to get in the paint, break down his defender one-on-one, play some of these situations, and then when Joe comes back and then hopefully they start playing more space lineups, now it becomes a little bit easier and you're playing well and getting to those spots and maybe some of these layups that he's missing because there's two guys at the rim are going to go down. You know, I think I'm less concerned about some of the missed shots because I think the shots are going to get easier as the season progresses if they start going with that offensive flow. And also, I think he's going to get a better rhythm for hitting some of those shots. He just, like you said, he looks a lot more confident and just like, he looks like James Harden. He does. Uh, On another note, I would say Nick Claxton, this was a nice test for him because I've also written about his sort of progression offensively, which I think is pretty apparent, you know, to a lot of Nets fans. He's clearly doing things he wasn't before. Um, This was a good test because it was like, okay, the athletes are a little bit bigger, faster, stronger. Your decision making has to be like a tenth of a second quicker. And I would say he passed the test tonight. There were a few moments where it's like, all right, he's clearly not, you know, Marcus all in the short role yet, but he's coming along nicely. I would say it gives me hope that if you're playing Harden, three shooters and Claxton, you can put Claxton in maybe the dunker spot. Uh, you know, you don't have to have him screen and roll all the time. Like Claxton can make a dribble and then do something now, yep. which, you know, oddly enough, sort of reminds me of Jared Allen, you know, two or three years ago when we were like, if Jared Allen puts the ball on the floor, something bad is going to happen. I think we're now elevating to the first step beyond that, which is like, OK, you know, I trust him to gather, take a second with the ball and still make the right play. Yeah, I think he's definitely getting more confident in his handles. Obviously, his handles were something that stuck out when he was in college, like his ability to kind of get to the rim. It's not like they were super tight or anything, but he looked like he had that ability potentially in the NBA. And then you mentioned the short roll. You know, there's some hot and cold moments, but there was a nice pass to Kevin Durant for a three tonight where I was just like, yeah, man, like that's a play that you definitely weren't making last year or even early in the season. So the short roll stuff is and decision making is ascending. 
It is. And that play was impressive because I think it was Bembry or Johnson on the wing. And that was sort of the release valve. And Claxton was like, no, no, no. Like I'm passing it to the to the better shooter, yep. even though it's a more it's a harder pass. Like I'm passing this for a three instead of just getting it out of my hands to get it out of my hands. Yep. Um, so Harden and Claxton, I think, you know, those were two big stories early in the season. I think going into the season, there was a lot of like, all right, the Nets clearly are expecting Claxton to be able to handle 25, 30 minutes a game. And without Kyrie, Harden has to be Harden. And neither of those things happened early on. And justifiably, inc- people, including myself, were a little bit panicked or maybe down on the team because of that. And now that it seems like both of those issues have been resolved, you know, again, looking at the big picture, that's very positive. Yeah. I also um, love the fact that, like, Clax is trying to murder whoever he sees at the rim. Like, yeah. he's trying to dunk on people, and that's leading to free throws where last year or even early in the season he was hesitating a little bit, trying to, like, create space that wasn't there and shoot shots that were a little bit more awkward. Just right. be aggressive. Be quick. I think also, like... He's taking advantage of guys playing off him in some of these situations because he's so quick, he's so fast. Maybe not as much in this game. I can't recall if it was the one against the Sixers or the Clippers, but there was just a drive in that game where he got hit, and he just, instead of going straight at the rim, he just took that little side swept a step and was able to go, kind of come from the left side rather than just straight ahead. And that's just like the small things that he's realizing in the NBA. Right. His angles finishing are much better. I mean, rookie last year, it was like, unless it's a lefty look like off the glass, he's not yep. finishing it. It just seems like he has a better understanding of angles and touch around the rim, which is really nice to see. And, you know, it makes you be able to trust him more. Uh, The free throw shooting is obviously going to have to improve, but you can't ask him to not be aggressive because he's worried about missing free throws. It's like you have to get to the line eight times a game first before you can, you know, address those issues. You can't play scared. Yeah, and I mean, tonight, maybe one of his best free-throw shooting games of his career, five of six from the free-throw line. Like, yep. I mean, I mean, a lot of time it feels like he shoots 50 or 60%, or it's like one of two or two of four. So five of six, Kyle Korver's probably sitting somewhere really happy about that. So, you know, Clax, and then obviously we know what he does defensively. You know, it's not a great matchup for him going against Steven Adams in the post, but that's not where he shines. He shines in his switching, and, you know, even I think his rim protection has improved over the last couple of weeks as well. Yeah, he had a few plays against the Clippers, actually, that were really nice, him meeting ball handlers at the rim. Um, That is, I think, still a worry, or at least something the Nets haven't figured out yet. Like, what's their plan for sort of the beefier teams of the in the league? I don't even think necessarily the Bucks qualifies that anymore, um, if they're going to play Portis instead of Lopez or, you know, something like that. Even the Clippers without Ben, or the Sixers without Ben Simmons are less of a team like that. Whereas last year was like, oh, Buck Sixers, so big and scary. Yeah. Um, but still, what are you going to do when you get to the Memphis Grizzly-like teams in the league? Like, are you just going to try to survive with Claxton? Do you really trust LaMarcus Aldridge and drop? You know, is Blake just no longer an option at this point? Is it the buyout market? That's definitely a sort of matchup that I don't think the Nets have their final answer for yet. I agree because, I mean, like, LaMarcus would help him probably just the size department tonight, but John Morant would have just ate him up. You know what yeah. I mean? It yeah. just would have been it would have been tough to watch. Um, and like you said, you know, Clax obviously doesn't have the body for dealing with some of these bigger and beefier guys, and the Nets don't necessarily have, you know, that other forward they can play. James Johnson has his limitations. I mean, I feel like the most intriguing thing for me would be, like, maybe Kessler, Katie, and Claxton giving you some, like, real length, but still they don't have that necessary size to deal with some of those teams. And like you said, in the East, is there really anybody you truly have to worry about? You know, I don't think Ben Simmons is 
going to be back. And if he is back, it's probably not with the Sixers. And like you said, with the Bucks, like they're rolling with Portis. Brooke Lopez's health is still like a concern in terms of what he'll be like in the playoffs. So it's more so maybe it's not that big a deal. Right. I think in the beginning of the year, I was a little bit like kind of gung-ho on Katie Clax Millsap just mm-hmm. to sort of drum up enough of that size and length. But I don't think Millsap has proven himself you know, as a viable option when you're playing the elite teams yet. Yeah. Um, but yes, I, uh, I I also think it's important to remember, you know, the Nets, whatever the resolution is with Kyrie, are missing two of their four most important offensive players and their two probably best shooters Yeah. Um, in terms of catch and shoot threats. KD is still only at like five threes a game, which is really kind of surprising. Um you know, you got LeBron taking eight a game and Steph taking 14 uh, and KD's down at five. But um, a lot of that is because he likes to go off the mid range. And maybe that's a little bit unfair to Patty Mills. But still, Kyrie and Joe out, you just lose a lot of instant offense, a lot of short touch sort of offense. It felt like the Nets were able to generate, you know, Kevin Durant, a lot of catch and shoot threes last year like a lot of good opportunities at the three-point line, where this year it's just been like more of a hassle. I think of late we've seen more, but it's just like if he wants to shoot a three, it's been a lot of pull-ups. And he's been a little iffy with taking that shot. It felt like last year he was taking it at like one of the higher rates in his career, and now he kind of went back to shooting more of those mid-range shots. So I don't know, something to kind of keep an eye on. But like you said, you know, getting Kyrie and Joe Harris back, two really, really good offensive players, it's going to fix a lot of problems. Yeah, I mean, I think this is, this doesn't really this kind of stretch this loss doesn't really change where I've been at on the Nets. That I think if Kyrie's in the lineup full time with Joe Harris, that's a that's a tier one if not a tier by themselves sort yep. of team. Um, without Kyrie, they're closer to a tier two team. Uh, you know, sort of closer closer to Memphis's level, probably still above them. But then you take Joe Harris out. And you take a night where Memphis just outplays them. Like, yeah, the Nets are not that good right now to survive yeah. a low effort night versus a team that is legitimately good. And they don't have the pieces on the bench or the depth to replicate the skill sets or even like a lesser version of, you know, Joe Harris and Kyrie Irving without like, you know, Patty Mills, I think, has an actual role in this team. So now, you know, maybe you move Patty into the Joe role. No one's in the Patty role. And then obviously, like you could play Cam Thomas, but he's not Kyrie Irving. Like he can do some of the similar things. So it's just like now all of a sudden you kind of get in trouble. But I want to push I want to go back to what you mentioned about Paul Millsap, you know, Mm -hmm. Has Millsap kind of surprised you in terms of like how poorly he's played, or is it more so you think that Steve Nash isn't giving him an opportunity to shine in different situations? I think both? that it just caught up to him. I think yep. it's been hard on defense because he's not really a drop guy, I don't think, at this yep. point. It's the better finishing guards. I mean, I think you can get away with him and drop versus some bench lineups that don't have, you know, a stud creator. But again, there's so much talent in the NBA. Like even Tyus Jones is going to pick you apart with floaters if you leave him open. Um, And I don't think the switching, unless you're really, really on a string behind him, has been very viable. Other than that, I mean, he's had family issues, right? Or just personal reasons. It's hard for a 36, 7-year-old to be in and out and in and out of the lineup. Um, And in his minutes, he hasn't really given them a lot. I also think it's a thing where James Johnson has had a lot of like nice dribbling playmaking, you know, for the offense. And that's sort of what I liked from Paul Millsap. Like he could do stuff with the ball. But now that you're getting that from Johnson, now that you're getting even it even a little bit from Cam, it, it's hard to really imagine a role for him 
So it's a lot of factors, but ultimately I'm not going to say, oh, Nash isn't playing him. That's why it's, you know, it's this is on Nash. I think it's pretty squarely on Millsap, you know, for a variety of reasons. Yeah, it's kind of like James Johnson fills in a lot of the boxes that you wanted from Millsap. I think, you know, ideally you wanted Millsap to be a little bit more mobile. Obviously, mm-hmm. that was kind of a long shot just given his age. It's not like he played an amazing season last year for Denver either. So it's kind of like, you know, we'll see what we have in him. Maybe he can be re- rejuvenated playing with a championship squad like this. But I, I personally like wouldn't be surprised if he's not on the roster when it comes to the playoffs, if he's a guy they ele- elect to trade or even maybe buy out themselves so they could fill in another spot in this roster for somebody else with a different skill set. Because even at this point in time, like, he's not providing enough difference from the other guys that are potentially taking his minutes. Right. I mean, I think, yeah, it's, it's part of that. That's the overlap is certainly a big part of that. Um, you know, man, it's time like these, you wish they didn't trade five second round picks with Deandre Jordan or whatever it was. Yeah. That, that, and just take the buyout. And then maybe you could get like Kenrich Williams from OKC with a couple second round picks or, you know, somebody along those lines, just like another forward. Or, you know, maybe there's a big any bigs in your mind that stick out that could be potentially available on the buyout or a light trade. I mean, I did write something about Mike Muscala. Everybody in the league is going to sort of look at him as like yep. a nice drop and three guy and sort of the Brook Lopez ish role um, where he's been really legitimately very good for OKC. Um Sort of like like a bona fide stretch five, not yep. sort of a fake spacer, like a legit like oh oh you got to close out to him, so that would be nice. Um, and that would I, open up some other guys because I, I yeah. mean like I'm a big believer and this is my own personal mindset for offense. Like I want to play four shooters, I can afford to have one non-shooter. So now if I have Mike Muscala and I'm playing him at the five, now it's not as bad if I have to play you know a Bembry, yeah, yeah, or Bruce Brown or even James Johnson. Like I have that that floor spacer at the center position, which is something I feel like you almost need in some of these lineups. Right. And even then you could go Katie Claxton Muscala if you wanted to get like kind of weird with it. Yeah. That sounds fun. (laughs) It does sound fun and long and big. You know, you got three guys with seven feet wingspans. Yep. But if it's not Muscala, I mean, it's going to be hard to, again, match offers when you don't have this draft capital. Um, and you sort of just have the TPE, which, you know, teams do have. I think it'll just be um, – we've seen Joe Sy sort of with a little bit of an unwillingness to spend around the margins. So I wouldn't be surprised if they just rock with it and try really just to get Kyrie back for home games. Yeah. I mean, it'd be interesting. I mean, it'd be funny maybe if they tried to make a move for even Jeff Green, brought him back. It's not like he's, you know, having super success in Denver. That'd be potentially a guy I would look at. Obviously, he's not a true big, but fit in nicely with some different stuff they did last year. And and hopefully maybe there's just that one team that just wants to get rid of one of their veterans. But it feels like even those guys don't necessarily feel the need, like, you know, Mike Muscala or some of the potential other real trade targets. Yeah, and there are a lot of teams trying to make the playoffs this year. Yeah, I mean, the playing game definitely has worked in that aspect as well. And there's also just like a lot of teams haven't really popped off. Yep, the 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 8 to 12, the 6 to 10, you know, in the East and then a little bit higher up in the West are just really dense. So, I mean, how many teams in the East don't want to make the playoffs this year? It'd be hard to think of more than, you know, Pistons even. Yeah, and even and, the Pistons yeah. play gritty in the Magic. Yeah, like other than those two teams, I mean, the Pacers should go that route. But they, they, the report came out today that they want to make trades to be more competitive. So even then, yeah. they're not willing to kind of let go. Yeah, every day they have Sabonis and Turner. They're not in that group of teams. So 
it's it's a bloodbath out here. I don't think the Nets can really rely on something like that becoming available. Yeah, it's definitely going to be um, interesting to see what happens, and or maybe they get lucky and they find somebody on a ten day, and you know he provides something, but still not very hopeful in that aspect. Lucas, anything else you want to touch on from this game, or any other thoughts on Nets you want to drop out there? Nope. I think overall it's hard not to overreact to losses like this, but we would all be better served not to. Um, and if the Nets win in two days and Kyrie is a great game, this is going to be very far in the rearview mirror. So, On a scale of 1 to 10, how excited are you to watch Kyrie Irving play for the Nets on Wednesday? Oh, man. In terms of just entertainment value, probably my favorite player to watch play basketball, I'd say a 10. Yeah. It's hard to say anything less than that. I think it's even easier to say a 10 after watching some of these painful lineups and just yeah. knowing that even if you put Kyrie in a painful lineup, like he's going to make some magic out of something or just even just seeing like him and Katie out there together is going to be fun. So I'm really excited. And obviously just like he's just an entertainer on the court. Like I don't there's not many guys that can provide you with highlights like he does. No, no. And I mean, even in the bad spacing lineups, Kyrie has always been. You know, in the same way, I think Blake Griffin earlier this year said KD is the most unaffected player by defense, you know, he's ever seen. Kyrie has a lot of that. It's like, unless you fully double and trap him, he's going to get to a shot that he feels comfortable with, and it's a matter of it going in or not. I mean, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some rust, obviously. I think we should all temper our expectations. Just, he's Kyrie, he's amazing, but it's hard to jump right into playing NBA games when you've been playing local high schoolers, as he put it. I'll say this, though. If there was a guy that I felt like could do it and go out there and just have, like, a big game out of nothing, Kyrie would be one of those guys. Just, like, it's just something about the way he plays basketball. It's going to be fun to watch, and like you said before, I think it's going to provide the team with a different level of energy. Like, there's just going to be a lot of happiness. We've heard a lot of stuff from his teammates missing him, even just in the locker room. So excited for that, and hopefully Joe Harris, we potentially see by the end of the month. You know, I know Steve Nash said a couple weeks before the game. Hopefully that couple weeks is before February. Yeah, that could be five weeks with this team. You know, <laughs> you really don't know. But Lucas, always a pleasure having you on. Big thanks to everybody for listening. Check the buzz on all streaming platforms. Whether you're a world-class athlete or a podcaster like me, we all understand the importance of mental and physical well-being and proper recovery for top-notch performance. That's why I'm excited that Unified Healing is sponsoring podcasts on the Blue Wire Network. Unified Healing is a new and super innovative global network of wellness centers powered by Energy Enhancement System, or EE System. If you haven't heard of the EE system yet, then you'll want to listen up. This technology promotes wellness, deep relaxation, purification, and rejuvenation. Wherever you are across the globe, access to a center is easy and affordable. Interested in experiencing the EE system technology for yourself? Go to unifiedhealing.com slash bluewire to learn more and find a center near you. That's unified, U-N-I-F-Y-D, healing.com slash bluewire. No material or testimonials on the Unified Healing website are intended to be viewed as medical advice or a substitute for professional medical advice, diagnosis, or treatment. Always seek the advice of your physician or other qualified healthcare provider with any questions you may have regarding a medical condition or treatment and before undertaking a new healthcare regimen, including EE system.